Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday. I've already started teaching in the university and elsewhere, and therefore it's hard for me to get these podcasts done before time, but Wednesday we're still in time. This week I see, although I got a lot of emails from people that do Ralph Cook, but that's too wide a topic. Uh, that's a complex, very complicated topic. Uh, but on the other hand, I see it's the Tosis Yontav, and that's something I can sink my teeth into or try to, even though, to be perfectly honest, that's also a gigantic topic. <coughs> But you don't know that, so it's easier for me to do it shorter. The Tosis Yantav is the name of a rabbi, the name of a book he wrote called Tosis Yantav, which literally is Tose, for the mass and science people out there, it's Tosefes Yantav, but we all call it Tosis Yantav. That's uh, Rabbi uh, Yantav Lippmann Heller. And we're talking with somebody from the 17th century, from the 1600s. Uh, 1579, I think, to 1654. You know, it's so mainly 1600s. Now, uh, what sets, separates him out of someone else? I mean, other than the fact that it's a yard site. Very, very interesting person. And one of the most celebrated of the early modern rabbis because his Balabatim tried to murder him. So that's pretty good. I mean, he must have been pretty good. Now, um, it's a very interesting story. The uh, person I'm talking about, Yontav Lippmann Heller, that's the name, Yontav Lippmann is the first name. Uh, he is... Born in Germany in 1579. I know that doesn't mean anything to most of you. But that's very interesting because there were almost no Jews in Germany in the 1500s. Once upon a time, the country that you and I call Germany didn't exist as such. But instead it was called the Holy Roman Empire. And composed of dozens and dozens of small German states that were sort of connected together and sort of not. Most of the time they fought each other. And... Over the course of the late Middle Ages, the 12, 13, 1400s, the Jews were kicked the heck out of Germany uh, in almost, I would say, 96, 97% of the country. Which means that in the 1200s and then in the next couple centuries, first this town and then that one and then this Medina and then that one all expelled the Jews or murdered them. There are many places in which it was just a pogrom broke out and killed everybody. I mentioned before, you know, like the Mordechai in Bagar Gemara was one of these victims. Him and his whole community was killed out in one of these crazy German pogroms in the 1200s. And you really see the Germans uh, like loathed and hated the presence of the Jews and wanted them out of there, which is something that came to roost in Hitler's time. And so if I tell you that I'm talking about somebody who was born in one of the German states in the 1500s, that's actually rather unusual. Most of the Jews had moved east to Poland, to places like that. So he's born in Bavaria, real yucky, super yuckish. Most of the yuckies that you and I know today, most, are not from families that stayed all the way in Germany century after century. Most of them are Jews who were kicked out of Germany in the 12, 13, 14, 1500s, and then 100 or 200 years later returned back. But there are some that stayed all the way through. These are the super yakas. 
And this guy, Yom Lippmann Heller, came from such a background, a small village, Wallerstein, small village in, in Bavaria, as is true of many Baltimore Jews. And the father was a rob or something like that. So he grew up, and, you know, as you hear about in the stories, he was an Ely from young age. Now, it's the late 1500s. There was one substantial Jewish community in the German Empire, in the Holy Roman Empire at that time. Uh, and just that one, and it was an important one. And that is uh, Prague, which I bet you had several thousand Jews in the 1500s. And that's why if you're a German-Jewish boy and you want to learn in, a, in, in yeshiva in Germany, defining Germany as the whole Central Europe area, the Holy Roman Empire, you go to Prague, which had multiple yeshivas and was really cooking. And so this young boy, Yontav Lippmann Heller, goes as a teenager to Prague. And the rabbi at that time, we're talking about the 1590s, is the Maral. Uh, when I was on my trip last month in Prague, in July, actually, uh, I gave a great deal of talking about the morale and the Yehud and people like that. I skipped over to the Tosis Yontif. Uh The morale was a uh, nonconformist, a iconoclast, kind of a rebel against the system. He's always criticizing the yeshiva system, and he uh, tried out many times to be the rabbi in Prague, and, of course, lost, because he couldn't refrain from keeping his mouth shut and telling the Balabatim what he really thought of them, and telling the Rosh Hashivas and the rabbis what he thought of them. We consider them all losers. Now this is uh, rather remarkable. That's the story of the morale. And he had his own, she did own system of learning, and, and I don't want to get too bogged down in that, other than to say that this young young of Lippmann Heller goes, and as a teenager, he learns with an unusual guttle, as we would say today, in the Yeshiva in Prague, uh, under the morale. It became a disciple. He must have been really something hot because at 18 he became a Dayan on the Maral's Basin. That's pretty good for Ben Shmonosar, right? Now, Prague, in the period I'm talking about, in the 1580s, 1590s, very early 1600s, was actually going through one of its good periods as far as the Jews are concerned. It came and went. Sometimes things are better, sometimes things are worse. I can't explain now why, during the reign of Rudolf II, things were relatively better, but that's what happened. So when he was there in Prague, it's a beautiful city. I was there, like I say, a little over a month ago. Very pretty, and uh, good weather and so forth. And it was a good economy. And in the time I'm speaking about, when the when the morale was there in his yeshiva, it was the capital of Germany, believe it or not. The capital of the Holy Roman Empire. Because the Kaiser, uh, the emperor, uh, Rudolf II, chose to reside here, not in Vienna. And it was the headquarters of science, and this and that and the other. So these were happy times. And this young guy, if he's born in 1579, so we're dealing 1597, 1598, the Maral was an old man, but he's still the Rav there, and these are young Dionomies recruiting to help him on there. The Maral is against the, uh, the, the yeshiva regular learning people without any system. He was Mr. System, and he's the guy you always hear about, where he said, you should first learn Chumash, and then you learn Mishnayis, and after you master all the Mishnahis, then you start the Gemara, you know, in a very organized, orderly fashion, which is something you hear about all the time, but every time they ever try to put it in practice, it kind of never worked, which is an interesting aspect of Jewish educational history. But now I'm not, I don't have time to go into that, um, other than to touch on it as an Ogeator subject. So this young guy, Yonta Lippmann Heller, has it pretty good. And he married there, 
And he basically stayed in Prague mm, for the first 50 years of his life, I would say. Something like that. So, uh, more or less. More or less. Uh, certainly the first 40. And uh, that means that he's a yeki of a certain variety, such as doesn't exist later on. And Prague is the place. And he's one of the hot scholars that turns it into the place. Uh, when the morale died, he was already a little out of it. Uh, he was succeeded by the uh, by one of his students, the Kliokar, and the Kliokar then by Yantav Lippmann Heller, eventually the Tosas Yantav. So here's somebody who becomes the, the Rav in Prague. And like I said, when I was in Prague with my group last uh, month, in July rather, so you have a limited amount of time. You're there for two days or something like that. And, you know, you can only talk so much, even me. And so... I devoted most of my remarks when we were going through the Prague ghetto to the two most famous rabbis that associated public mind with Prague. One is the Maral and the other is Nova Yehuda. But there were many others. And one of the others is the Tosis Yon, Gunther Lippmann Heller. While he was in Prague, so uh, especially being a member of the Basin, so here's a guy who starts in Basin 18 and in his 20s and in his 30s. So, you know, he's hot stuff. And he learns up a storm. And money he had, he was not poor. I think he might maybe married in the money or something like that. And he owned a nice home. And he had the kind of big house that one room could be his private little yeshiva or something like that, which was not uncommon in Prague. And so he had Torah Gadul of Amakam Echad. And he was very widely read and learned. Uh, by that I mean not only Shas and Poskim, but being a student of morale, more widely read, you know, in the uh, philosophy books like the Marnebuchim and the Kuzri and all that sort of thing. And others that you never heard about before, Yadaya Bidersi, and uh, uh, small, unusual uh, uh, authors. I would even call him, even though this is totally the wrong word, totally the wrong word, I would even call him a Moscow in the sense that he was into Ivrit, and into Tanakh, and into uh, you know poetry, and those kind of things, which aren't just Gemara, 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 although certainly somebody like him can be darn sure, put in 99% of the time, into Gemara, 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 and Halacha, Halacha, Halacha. Because if he's on the basin of Prague, they are Paskin and Shalas right and left. They're writing Shalas and Shubas all the time. So far, so good. As part of the legacy of the morale, um, he obviously got involved very much in the study of Mishnah. It's because one of the many, many sides of the morale, many-sided figure, is the fact that uh, he... Uh, discerned the morale I'm talking about, the unhealthy nature, um, the unhealthy intellectual sociology of the Jewish community of yesteryear, which in plain English means it's not good if two or three guys in town know how to learn and nobody else knows anything. Uh, that's unhealthy. Uh, from communities can't exist on that basis. If the learned class is really extremely narrow and everybody else knows pretty much bupkis, uh, then they're not going to be able to follow the dinim, and they'll have uh, contempt, or uh, they'll certainly be, uh, you know, wondering what the rabbis are doing. They'll be divorced from the mainstream of uh, Torah life, as we should say. And instead, rather, a healthy, I'm talking about the moral now, a healthy Jewish community will be composed of, in a chanami, an elite of real big learners, there are never many of those, but a large middle class, shall we say, intellectual middle class, of people who know a nice, decent amount, what we would call today a learned balabash. 
He ain't a rabbi exactly. He can't pass on a shayla, but you know, knows how to learn, as we would say. And it's really fascinating to me that the morale, therefore, uh, advocated uh, measures to help widen the Jewish knowledge, Torah knowledge, of a much broader class of people than had formerly been the case. So if a yeshiva, as was the case in the time of the morale, was for a few real smarties, and, and from a very early age on, you started learning tosis and asking kashas and making chalukim, as they called in those days, and pilpul, pilpul and all this stuff, you're automatically icing out like 90% of the guys in the yeshiva, let alone people who are not going to yeshiva. So you're just going to grow up with a whole bunch of people in town who went for a little while to yeshiva, had a very negative experience. Uh, they know a little bit, uh, but they're like turned off from the whole learning and all the rest of it. They're cynical at the uh, Rabbanim, because those are the few winners that had it good, and had the good shidduch, and this, and that, and the other. And uh, it's just unhealthy, you understand? It's unhealthy. And so, what this boils down to in plain language is that the morale advocated a much larger uh, learning of Mishnahis. Because the learning of Mishnah is indeed a fantastic way for a regular person to acquire very wide bekeas and knowledge of the Torah Shabbat now, from a super yeshivish point, they'll say, even in that time, they had super yeshivish point. Eh, Mishnah is for losers, eh, that sort of thing. Real men learn tosas, you know. Uh, he hated that kind of mahalach. But he said, what's the point of one guy spending all his time learning Baba Kama, for example, for years and years, and giving you a, a little booklet with his kedushim, and he doesn't know much of anything else, and a lot of his uh, thoughts are based on the fact that he's just wrong because he didn't know this Mishnah here and that Gemara there, what we call today lack of Bikiyas. Now, not everybody's cut out to be a Bucky Bikiyas in terms of finishing Shas or finishing Homosechtas. Nowadays, with the Art Scroll and all that, I'm serious now, with the Daf Yomi, new vistas has opened up. But I'm talking about yesteryear. It wasn't for everybody. It's for very, very few. Ain't too many Shakasarias out there, you know. And so, how does somebody get a Sipag on Nefesh and learning, and how are they ever going to be able to finish any? Well, the answer is Mishnais. The answer is Mishnais. Somebody makes a Seder if a synagogue or a community sets up a Chavar Mishnah, which they didn't used to have, then it's totally possible, if people are diligent, that they can go through Shisha Seder Mishnah, certainly they can go through uh, Moed Nash and Mazikin, and know a heck of a lot, even if you don't know all the Gemaras, even if you're not super duper, you know, all the Tosasin and the other Rishon and all the rest of it. You come out knowing a Gansafina, a, a, a pretty impressive amount of uh, knowledge. I'll just give you one example off the top of my head. And this is how Maral would approach it. And then his students. I'm speaking now at the beginning of the month of Elul. Pretty soon in a couple of weeks is coming Tishrei. Well, from the Maralian point of view, here's what you should do. Uh, go through the Mishnahis, Rosh Hashanah, uh, Yuma, Sukkah, and uh, you'll go through, you'll, all of a sudden you hit Yanta with a lot of uh, Yadiyas. And... Uh, also, a beta and moid cotton, because beta is the laws of yantav. After all, Roshani and Kippur and Sukkot are yantavs. Plus, uh, moid cotton is about the chalamoid. So, you do those five mesechtas in the Mishnayas, uh, and especially if you do them well, you're going to know quite a bit about the upcoming holidays. Now, it's not the same thing going through the Gemara, but still, you will know quite a bit. So, uh, if you just distance, you say, well, that's for people who don't know any better. Eh. Then you, then, then to him, to the morale and his students, you're doing a terrible disservice. Consequently, they looked at this, the project of Mishnayis 
as like a major tool to raising the broad level of the average Joe out there, the average intelligent Joe out there, uh, and therefore creating a much more intellectually healthy Jewish community. I hope I made myself clear. Uh, this is just very interesting. Now, you have to understand, for many centuries there wasn't a commentary on the Mishnah. It's not a good one. Uh, Rashi didn't write on the Mishnah. Uh, the other Shonim didn't write on the Mishnah. The Rambam did. But first of all, the Rambam wrote in Arabic, and the, and uh, in Judeo-Arabic. And uh, it wasn't out for a lot of people because it's the translations of the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah were always junky. Everybody knows this. There weren't good translations from the Arabic until, I'd say, the 20th century was Kapach. Uh, there were a couple of other Rishonim, like the Rajbo, not the Rajbo, but the Rajbo, the Shimshim ben Avraham Masans, the Baltosas, who wrote on some of these, uh, you know, Kachim and Tyrus type uh, Mesechtas. But that's for the Talmud Chacham. That is not for the average guy. That's a pretty uh, deep uh, kind of uh, commentary. I mean, I could also call your attention to Rabbi Gona, wrote, you know, a learning thing on Tyrus. But generally speaking, the average guy out there, if you want to learn there's nothing to help him. And therefore, it's a closed book. Only when the uh, Bartanura came along in the late 1400s, a Ravadia of Bartanura, uh, he, he realized what I just said. He lived in Italy, and I think discerned the same thing that I was talking about before, the unhealthy sociology and the desire to spread the knowledge of the Mishnah along, among broad masses so that you could come to a community and the Hever Shas is not for everybody, but Hever Shnai should be for most people. And the rabbi, whoever should give a shear every day or whatever in the in the Mishnais, and you could uh, cover quite a bit. And the uh, Bartunur therefore composed his famous route, the Bartunur, which became like the Rashi on uh, the Mishnais. What the Bartunur, of course, did was he mishtuk together, he combined uh, Rashi and the, because uh, Rashi is in the Gemara, and the Gemara does have the Mishnais. So you will have, you know, Rashi uh, on, on that part of the Mishnah, you know, that you find in the Shas, even though it's not technically a commentary in the Mishnah per se, and also the Rambam. The Rambam style, by the way, is not the friendliest. It has a plus and a minus. And I'm saying all this for a reason. The uh, the, the Rambam style, if you ever do the Rambam's commentary in the Mishnah, is to be uh, very broad. He'll give a big klolem that are very, very important to know, but he doesn't do it word by word, line by line. It's not his style, okay? It's a more, uh, what's the right word? You know, broad and discursive. But the Bartanur made it much, much more. Uh, that was in the early 1500s. Now we're talking about the late 1500s, early 1600s. So Yantav Lippmann Heller, who's yard says this week, he took this morale idea, and uh, he obviously, clear. it's clear to me as day, he had his own little private yeshiva going on over there because he had things good in Prague. And he obviously said, look here, in this uh, yeshiva mine or in this morning state or whatever, we're making a systematic, we, the yeshiva guys, the learned ones, the guys who know how to learn, right? We, we know Shas and Postkim. I mean, you know, th- these are the older guys, as it were. He probably had five, ten guys, fifteen guys for all I know, learning in his house in his private base matters. And he said, we're going to make a thorough, learned study of the Mishnayis. So when we learn the Mishnayis, we're also going to learn the Gemara with it. You follow what I'm saying? They were Bar-Haki to do that. And after we finish that project, so let's say just off the top of my head, you're learning, uh, you know, uh, Mishnayis, I don't know, uh, Rosh Hashanah's coming up, Rosh Hashanah, right? So, you know, there are four Rosh Hashanahs, and they're like, like the Masech that starts. There are Abba Rosh Hashanahs. 
So uh, they learned the Gemara with it. And if you're uh, a Yantav Lemon Heller, you learn the, the Roshami with it and all that stuff. And the Roshonim and all this kind of business, the Tosas. And then after that, then you say like this, how can we summarize all our, our research um, and, and write it on the side of the, as, as, a, as a commentary sort of on the Mishnah? But it's more than just a line-by-line commentary. It's much bigger, much broader than that. It takes into account all the research we did in the other Gemaras and in the Rishonim and this and that and the other and the Halach Lamaisa. And being that he was a very broad-minded guy, I told you, Shtekel Moscow, a broad-minded guy, he's also interested in the dicta questions and, and uh, if ever you have realia, uh, you know, like what's the science, uh, uh, according to science of that day, what's the science have to say about this subject? Uh, he did have a copy of Euclid, because there's certain Mishnahites like Kalim, you got to know the geometry. You see what I'm saying? You bring in all the science and the history and all the rest of it. He did, by the way, he tried in, in his level to bring in historical stuff, like from Josephus, believe it or not, and uh, and places like that. It's Ari de Rossi, and then you write, the, you compose your commentary. This commentary came, he called Tosefis Yontava. Like I said, for the math and scientists out there, uh, there's a concept in the Gemara. Uh, called adding to Yantav and to Shabbos, correct? I don't know if you know this. It's a din that you don't start Shabbos at the very, very beginning of Shabbos, but you have to start a minute or two before. It's called Tosefe Shabbos. Same thing with Yantav. You're not supposed to start Yantav and, and light the candles literally at the moment uh, Yantav begins, but a little before. minute, two minutes, five minutes, whatever. Uh, you know where you can read about this if you're at all interested in the subject? Yom Kippur's coming up, so Zevin and the Modim Malacha, I remember us by heart has a nice little piece about Tosis Yontav and Negei Yom Kippur. You know, where you have to start fasting beforehand. But what is the word? Adding on to Yom Tov, adding on to Shabbos. How you say that in Hebrew? Tosefes Shabbos. Tosefes Yontav. See, his name was Yontav Lippmann Heller, so he called his commentary that he's composing with the Yeshiva guys together Tosefes Yontav. But you know how the world is. They can't remember. They say Tosis Yontav. So I say also. I mean, we all say Tosis Yontav. And he did this for Shisha Sidri Mishnah, baby. The whole business. Kachim, Tyrus, Zeroim, and all the rest of it. Mishnah by Mishnah, learning it through with his guys, almost like doing like Rashi did with the Gemara. And uh, bringing a potpourri of uh, attitudes, you know, the Halachalam sometimes, and the science sometimes, and the Lumdas sometimes, and the Rishonim and the Chronim according to his time sometimes. And, and his idea was to give the learner out there, the guy who's learning, to copy what he just did. Let the Mishnahis not just be for losers. Let the Mishnahis not just be for guys that are, uh, you know, from the Hamon Am, that are just doing a Chev Mishnahis. That's good too. He's 100% in favor of that. That's fine. That's great. But let's move it up a notch. And the learners themselves should learn the Mishnahis and learn it with a Be'in and thoroughly and look up the different places the way he did. And this he called Tosis Yantav. So the Tosis Yantav is a commentary on the whole Mishnayis. And it, and since the title sounds like Tosevis, it sounds like Tosis Yantav, so long ago they started to publish the Mishnayis with the Bartanur on one side and the Tosis Yantav on the other side. So it looks like a page of Gemara. The Bartanur is like Rashi, and Tosis Yantav is like Tosis. It's not exactly like Tosis, but a little bit it is. And what it does is it has the function of deepening the person's uh, understanding of the Mishnah, but you have to spend time and, and work through it. It's not it's not easy necessarily, okay? It's not so easy. Uh, this took off like wildfire once upon a time. Not today. Now, I just live in Baltimore, so I don't know what's going on in the whole world, 
But my impression is, since we live in the day of an art scroll, and the Dafyomi, and the Steinzals, and this, and, then, and the Masifta, and so forth, I think the Tosis Yantav today has been sort of like a Cinderella, it's like pushed aside, I think. Most people I know that are learning Mishnayis are doing with Kahati, or the art scroll, or something like that. Isn't that right? You know, isn't that usually how it goes? Uh, and I get there's nothing wrong with that, nothing at all. It's fine. But I'm just saying that's short, sweet, and to the point. K, you know, it's, it's, it's written deliberately, K-A-S-S. Uh, and somebody told me the other day, I think I'll be known that the art school now put out an even more dummy-friendly uh, uh, set of the Mishnahis, which again, is a great thing. I'm, I'm all in favor of it. It's, it's really a great idea. So uh, what I mean is the existing art school Mishnah, not the art school Gemara Mishnah, is quite a dense work of scholarship. You know, I've done some. Uh, Steve Camp and I are doing the McVos now with the, it's, it's the art school. I mean, it's quite a work of, of scholarship. But it's not, uh, and, it, and it's in English, anybody can do it, but it's, it's fair, it, it requires a fair amount of, um, of depth. Uh, this new art school, Mishnah, I believe, is more uh, down to earth, I think. I haven't seen it, but this is what I heard. Anyhow, the point is it's the world of Mishnahis. And he became perhaps the most important commentary, or maybe the second most important commentary. So before there existed art scroll, and before there existed, um, what do you call it? Um, the uh, art school Mishnah and Kahati. So what you, you had to learn Mishnayis uh, with the Bartanura and the uh, Tosis Yontif, and in Germany the the, the, the various role. This became the class. This is, so for the 1600s, the 1700s, 1800s, I would say, early into early 1900s, you found all over Europe and European Jews in America and elsewhere, the synagogues and and communities would have Chaver Mishnayis. Uh, not a sheer like you have now Dafiomi, which is a, what you call a Chavashas, but it's a Chavashas. And there'd be some, you know, rabbi or something, and he would learn with a bunch of people, usually Balabatim, uh, you know, businessmen, craftsmen, people like that. And they could go through Gantz Mishnais, uh like that, and they would learn it with the, with the, with the uh, Bartanur, and if there was a little bit of a more lumdish uh, group over there, they'd do it with the Tosis Yontif, and everybody was happy. Uh, no, it's, it's, it, it's, it, it's quite an accomplishment, but I'll say it again, it's not easy. I recall this, and I mentioned before, if you look in the Note of Yehuda, there's a very famous, uh, notorious case about this yeshiva boy who lived with a family, got involved in an affair with, a, with the married lady of the house, and then ended up marrying the daughter. Oh my goodness, it's a triple X-rated uh, tshuva, and uh, the, the sinner, the, the guy involved who was the, the sinner, uh, then wrote to the rabbi, wrote to Nebi Huda, probably that's a disguise, probably wrote to Nebi Huda, and he said like this, aside from all the other questions over here, now I realize what I've done wrong, and he did, according to the story, he confessed, you know, he, nobody found, discovered the affair, he just confessed. He said, I want you to prescribe for me a penance. What shall I do to torture myself, flick myself, which is an old Ashkenazic uh, uh, thing. You know, now's the month of El, we're all going to learn Rambam, Hilchus Chuba, and things like that. Those are about repentance. The Talmud knows about repentance. But in Jewish history, in the Middle Ages, there developed a whole culture of penance, in which you have to flagellate yourself, or burn yourself, or, I don't know, this, that, and the other, hurt yourself physically. And the sinners solicit this. They say, I've done a terrible sin. I want to feel the pain, so I can get rid of it on this side, so when I die, I'll go clean into the next side. And the guy writes to the note of Yehuda, and he says, I was involved in this heavy affair, I think five years, if I remember correctly. And that's a long time. That's a lot of myself errors over there. And the note of Yehuda says something along the lines, 
I'm not into penance. Uh, you know, I don't know about this Hasidish stuff, as he calls it. But, uh, and he didn't mean the modern Hasidim, he meant the old Hasidim. And, but, if you want to torture yourself all the rest of it, since you're a Talmud Chacham, you're not learn, because the guy was good in learning. Unfortunately, you and I know, good in learning doesn't necessarily translate into good in other areas of life. And uh, since you're good in learning, learn hard stuff. And if it's hard for you to figure out, let that pain of trying to exercise your mind and work through something difficult, let be, that be the pain that you suffer. Which is a very sublime, no to kind of art, you know. And he said, if you really want to you know, put your mind through heavy stuff and experience the pain of trying to ma- master dense and difficult texts, all the rest of it. Do the Tosis Yontif. <laughs> you look, look inside there. There's an Orachim 35 for those that are out there. Rabbi so-and-so told me I should give the source. Of, it's Orachim 35. It's very famous. And uh, what, um, what do you call it? They said, learn the Tosis Yontif. So I'm just simply suggesting to, to those of you out there, since there's the yard said the Tosis Yontif this week, if you want to do something interesting, and I'm serious about this, uh, here comes Elo. Now, Rosh Hashanah is around the corner. Russia is not that long. But if you want to, just pick, I don't know, it all depends on your time. Uh, pick the last pair of Rosh Hashanah, which talks about, mostly about the uh, actual Rosh Hashanah rules, about the chauffeur and this and that and the other. And do, go through the Bartunura, not the Kahati, go through the Bartunura and do the Tosis Yantams on there. And you'll see it's kind of interesting. This commentary was so uh, uh, popular, although sometimes too dense, that it had the it, it received the compliment that was condensed. So in a lot of Mishnahis that you see nowadays, you'll see on the one side, the Rav, the Bartanura, and the other side, what they call Iker Tosis Yontif, which means an, a, a kitzer of the Tosis Yontif, a, 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 a brief amount of Tosis Yontif. And they even have those on the apps, my friend. I have an app on my, on my phone, Believe it or not, me, you know, Mr. Technical, know nothing. And if I want to, I can see the Mishnahs with the Iker Tosis Yantav on there. That's how basic it became to the study of the uh, Mishnahs. Now, if that's all he did, that would be a very interesting by itself. And here's somebody that by the time he was, uh, let's see, 15, 20, 40, uh, he, had, it was, he had composed, it wasn't, I think he'd finished the whole doggone Tosis Yantav, all she said your Mishnah. By the way, you have to know a lot. Kachim Tyrus, around my goodness, you know, you have to know a lot. Uh, but he could do it. He had Torah Gadul and Malkamech, and everything was going great. As a result, his fame spread. They asked him in, in his 40s to occupy some important rabbinical positions. He took position A, position B, and then position C. In position C, it blew up in his face. In position A, his first important, until then he was in Prague as a dying, a well to do guy. Uh, position A, he, they took him to Rabbi Nicholsburg, where I was with my group back in July, Mikolov, which is the capital of uh, Morav- Jewish Moravia. And uh, he was there for a couple years, not too long. And already you see signs of trouble because he was an honest guy. He was a champion of the poor. Champion of the poor means you want the taxes to be done fairly. According to him, taxes done fairly means a graduated tax. The rich pay more, the poor pay less. Well, the rich don't want to hear that, and they're the ones that have the power in the community. So he didn't stay too long over there. But uh, on the other hand, he was a great speaker, and obviously a gigantic Talmud Chacham, and you know, he had a charisma. And so uh, they take him to be the rabbi after a while in Nicholsburg to Vienna, which is the capital of the Austrian, the Holy Roman Empire. We are now, excuse me, we are now talking the years between 1618 and 1648. 
which in, in, in European history called the Thirty Years' War. And that was a gigantic war that was mostly fought in Europe, I mean in, in Germany and German states, between the Catholics versus the Protestants. It's too long and complicated to explain, but the whole business started in Prague. Okay? Prague used to be a uh, Protestant city, primarily, and then they certain things happened, and this, it set off the Thirty Years' War, and the Habsburgs, the Austrians, conquered Prague and Vienna and killed the Protestants and established a Catholic dictatorship, and they kept that down to the 20th century, uh, which is why the Czechs in Prague to this day don't like religion. Now, um, how does this affect what we're talking about over here? He was a rav in these communities during a war zone. And I can tell you right now that the fighting during these 30 years was so barbaric that whole communities got wiped out. Women were chopped in half, babies burned alive. It was like a, 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 a precursor for the Holocaust. And it was a Holocaust for the Germans, but not for the Jews. It's almost funny. The Catholics and Protestants are so busy fighting each other that most of the time they left the Jews alone. It's, it's weird. You could have a Jewish... Um, what shall I say, a ghetto, something like that, in a town. The ghetto turned out to be the only safe place because the Catholics attacked and wiped out the Protestants in the town, and vice versa. And neither one went to the Jews. Matter of fact, they put their money in the Jewish quarter. It was like a base, you know? So it's funny, broadly speaking, the uh, Thirty Years' War, which is so terrible in its uh, brutality, didn't hit the Jews. And he was a rabbi in the Catholic part, in the Austrian part, in, in Vienna, for example. And uh, he was a rub there in the community. It wasn't a large community, but, you know, had money. And again, he was a good speaker and a good this and a good that. And then they asked him to come back and be a rabbi in Prague. Well, well, well. For him, this is the, the, the summa, you know, the, the, the peak. He was, his rabbi was the, uh, the Maral, who was a rabbi in Prague, and the other one with the Kleokar, and he'd been on the base then. This was like, you know, the sum of all ambitions. Well, guess what? came to Prague right during the Thirty Years' War. I told you before, I'm simplifying, that there were all this fighting in Prague between the Catholics and the Protestants. And by the time it's over, the Catholics won the Habsburgs. And they imposed a big fine on the Jewish community just for the heck of it. And the taxes basically doubled. Think about that. Suppose I told you tomorrow. I'm giving you real life over here. I don't know what you're paying for tuition for your day schools, but you're paying something. Or yeshiva or seminary. Suppose I told you overnight it doubled. So you're paying ten thousand. The price went to twenty. People will howl if it goes up from ten to eleven or thirteen to fourteen. What if it went from thirteen to twenty-six overnight? So it was a tough situation. He wanted to make it that the rich don't totally stick it to the poor. This made him a lot of enemies among the rich, and Prague, as a community, in the early modern era in the 15th, 1700s, was famous for two things. Number one, it was the number one center of intellectuality, the, the number one Malcolm Torah, the highest learning, probably. I think that's a pretty fair statement. And number two, the unbelievable Machlokas. It was like Korach City. Prague is notorious in history for having terrible, terrible fights between factions. And not over principle, over guilt, over positions, and who gets to control the Gehilla, and the Chabrigadisha, and all that junk. And he got right in the middle of it. And therefore, a whole faction formed against him. Same thing happened to Maral. Now it's not time to go into that, but he also got stuck over and screwed over by all these uh, factions many times. And when he got to be the rabbi over there and then started interfering in the taxes, the other side that didn't like him, they went to the Catholic Church. They went to the Austrian government, and they said he's anti-Christian. Can you believe it or not? They're Malshinim, 
the first magnitude. They said, look at his writings. You'll see he disses Christianity. Well, you tell it to the Catholic priest, they don't even care about the facts. The, the charge is enough. Next thing you know, he got arrested. And he tells the whole story in something called Megillus Ava. I see I'm already speaking 35 minutes. I don't have time to go into this uh, book. Maybe another year. It's a, it's a, like a movie. Because he got arrested and he was charged with uh, dissing uh, Jesus and uh, dissing Christianity and so on and so forth in his halachic writings. And by the way, if you want to get down to it, I don't, have, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because the hour is late. But, you know, he lived in a time when um, the Jews had to deal with the issue, with, with the controversial issue about Stam Yenum, about drinking uh, Geisha wine. And Stam Yenum, and a lot of Jews just bought wine at the bar, at the, at the liquor store. You know, the, 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 what you and I would call trafe wine. It's not trafe, but you know what I mean. It was, it was touched by Goyim. Well, strictly speaking, it should only be for pagans. Are you telling me the Christians are pagans? The Jewish tradition has been very conflicted over this. There are books, but it's Jacob Cash's exclusiveness and tolerance and many other books. And the Jews kind of had, uh, uh, the Ashkenazi Jews developed a profile of a sort of a studied cognitive dissonance. Uh, Christianity is not uh, a Vodazara, otherwise we can't do business with them, but it is a Vodazara, the God of the wine, and things like that. You know? It's like, a, it's like, a, like I say, an a, a, um, inconsistent uh, kind of approach. So there was no, And he wrote a commentary on the rush besides this. I'm not going to have time today to go in that. It's a shame. It's a very interesting uh, story what happened to him because uh, he looked at the rush as like the successor of the riff and that's a certain way of learning Gemara. But I spend all my time today talking about the Mishnah, so I'm not going to spend time on this other subject, maybe in the future. It's very, very interesting. And the bottom line is he did Chulin, he did Vacharis. You know, you deal with these questions of... How do you define Goyim? How do you define Ovdevodazara? Would you say a cross is, is an Ovdevodazara? And there's enough in those halachic writings to get somebody arraigned and uh, uh, accused. What kind of a Shmo would do that? You understand? What kind of a guy would go to the Catholic Church, to the Austrian government, and say, This guy dissed Christianity in something he wrote in Yoridea, which nobody will even read Yoridea if this guy didn't. These are Malshinim of Category A, right? Uh, a Category A storm. It's unbelievable. It happened to him. So his own guys, who didn't like him, Mama, you know, threw him to the wall. They tried to get him killed. And he was carried off in chains to Vienna to be hauled in front of the court. And the church gave him a trial, and he had to like defend himself, and he writes the whole thing up. Uh, if this was a regular podcast, I would have skipped the first half and told you all the movie parts about his uh, tribulations and trials uh, in, in the court, in which, by the time it's over, because of a quirky... Uh, said, first of all, some guy, the other guys in this community went to bat for him. And when I say they went to bat for him, I mean they bribed everybody right and left. Second of all, it was kind of clear, even to the people trying him, that he wasn't as bad as he was described. You understand? Uh, thirdly, and this is kind of cute, uh, there's like a Pirche story over here. His son, the Tosiantum son, had been going to... I'll just tell you the story very briefly, and then I'm going to end this, because the hour is late. Tosiantum's son had been sent off to yeshiva in France, in Metz. Remember I talked about Shagas, I was in Metz. So this in the 1600s. And uh, he spent time there in the yeshiva there. Once upon a time was a Malcolm Tower. And then the, and he was returning home to Prague. And it's much like a movie. And when he was on the way back, this son, he was walking or something like this, and there was a, like a, a carriage that was overturned, 
And these two fancy ladies, a mother and a daughter, were being chased, I think, by a wild boar, if I remember correctly. Uh, and uh, they got killed. And the reason was because one of the women was carrying like a red scarf. And she was too dumb to realize that's like a, a red flag in front of a bull, as they say. And this yeshiva student had the presence of mind to run over to the girl or the lady, whichever one, yank off the red scarf, throw it in another direction, and the boar chased off after the scarf. So the bottom line, he saved their life. And then the husband showed up. The husband was the French ambassador to the Austrian court in Vienna. And so by the time the whole story's over, uh, this ambassador helps the son of the Tosion get his father out of jail, but at a cost of all his money. So I wouldn't say he's a millionaire, but he was quite well-to-do, and he lost everything, uh, plus others, and he was forbidden to be a rabbi, and that wrecked his life. So that happened at the age of 50. Imagine that. At 50... Or 51, he had to rebuild his life. And he did. He moved to Poland. And Poland, things were better in his time. But uh, he got into trouble in Poland also because he was a little bit too honest. Like I said, when he came into the community, he used to say like this, Rabbi, talk about the Parsha. Talk about Judaism. Don't talk about how the taxes are apportioned. Or as we would say today, don't talk about how the tuition is spent or how the school would achieve is spending the money or where the bank accounts are. That's not your business. And he would say, no, actually, it is our business. The Torah says you have to be honest. Well, goodbye, Rabbi. You know, that's how it went. So he was like four or five towns in Poland till he ended up in Krakow. And uh, where, see, he was a rove here and rove here and rove there and rove there. Uh, I'll, 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 the hour is so late, I just can't forbear. He lived through the uh, Khmelnytsky massacres, 1648, 1649. So he was actually uh, in his 70. He was 70 when the... Uh, Cossack massacres uh, took place in Poland. Now, he wasn't there. He was in the western part of Poland. He wasn't a part of it. But he saw the Khorban, you know, tens of thousands, if not more, of Jews were slaughtered by the Cossacks. And he and the rabbis got together in Poland, and they did what you wouldn't do today, which is, why did this happen to us? How do we interpret this? And uh, they all came up. Under his, the, the rabbis all got together in Poland, and under the presidency of the Tosis Yontov, they said like this, we identify two sins that could account, two sins that could account for the uh, Holocaust that we just endured. What would be these two big sins? A, talking in shoal. B, corrupt rabbis. <laughs> right? So, you know, the first one they approved of, the second one didn't make them so popular. But he said there are a lot of corrupt rabbis over here, and uh, that, that caused a horbin. Uh, the first half they liked, and as you know, he made a Mishaberach, maybe you've seen it in your shoal, for all those who don't talk in Davani. It's called the Mishabech HaTosis Yantav, which was a reaction to the Holocaust of 1640-1649. I've gone over my time, and I'm easily going to end up at 60 minutes, so I'm going to close it down over here. Like I said before, if you're at all interested in what I said now, the easy way to um, deal with this is, like I say, Rosh Hashanah is coming up, uh, um, what do you call it, uh, uh, Yom Kippur is coming up, Sukkot is coming up. These are all Mishnahis that are not endless. They're like... They're not small, Yuma and then Sukkot are not small exactly, but uh, if you do some parts of it, let's say a parak with the Bartunur uh, and the Tosis Yontov, you get a flavor of what I'm saying, and I'm sure if he was around, he would say that's what he would prefer also. With that, I will say goodbye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www. 
support.rabbidavidkatz.com.